13. Jeremiah 13. It's good to be back with everyone. Our Sunday evening service. I feel like we're getting a sense of our normalcy restored back to us. That's always encouraging. And we're going to get back to the way things were at some point. But let's uh, pray and ask the Lord to bless uh, the preaching and the hearing of the Word of God tonight. Father, we do confess it is well with our souls because you sent a Redeemer. Formerly, our souls were in rebellion, and yet you came and you changed the trajectory of our lives in your Son, Jesus Christ, by saving us through his life, his death, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to your right hand, and then sending your spirit to not only save us, but to form the people of God called the church. And Lord, we can say as a result, even more so than the psalmist, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, for a, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And Father, we confess that you are our sun, you are our shield, and Father, we, we thank you that we can approach you this evening through your son, Jesus. And Lord, we just want to pray right now as we get back into Jeremiah. Lord, we pray that your spirit would attend to this time. Give us wisdom to make the most of this opportunity, to steward it well. We're tired. Um, our people have already heard a sermon today. Father, we pray that you would give us grace to be attuned to what the Spirit-anointed, Spirit-inspired prophet has to say to the people of God at Fisherville in the 21st century. We ask these things for the name of Christ. Amen. Well, next year is the 85th anniversary of the publication of one of the best-selling books, most influential books, especially in the West, of all time, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And in this book, a technique is set forth that has really informed and influenced business practice and even in sales. You see this used when companies are training their salespeople. And the principle is this, where you, you put the other person, for instance, that you're trying to sell in a position where they can't say no. Indeed, they have to say yes. They're compelled to do so. Of course, that's a good principle for business. But this approach to business has always been the approach of pagan religion ever since the fall. Namely, this false idea that you can do certain things and, and by doing these certain things, you put God in a position where he can't say no to you. Indeed, he has to say yes to you. Well, that's Judah. That's the people of God that Jeremiah is preaching to. They 
had been led by Josiah into this remarkable religious reform, but it was all external. But they believed by that external reform that God could not say no to them. God had to continue to say yes to them based on their external religious practices. Maybe most clearly in chapter 7 we saw that in Jeremiah's famous temple sermon uh, where Jeremiah accused them of repeatedly breaking the Ten Commandments. In fact, he addresses six of the Ten Commandments in Jeremiah 7. But they felt no shame about breaking God's law in Jeremiah 7 because then they would come to the temple and, and say, the temple, the temple, we are safe. We are the people of the temple. And they believed because of their outward devotion uh, to cultic life centered around the temple, there was no way God would say no to them. In fact, they had false prophets that we have seen throughout the, this book saying, peace, peace. And Jeremiah has addressed that. Of course, that's the epitome of religious pride, wicked pride. And one thing that's clear from Scripture about pride, and I don't think we say enough about pride because we as Christians are really good at addressing certain particular sins. But the fact is, unrepentant pride will kill you. And not only will it kill you, it'll kill you forever. It's the crown sin that'll keep you from living in dependency to the Lord and actually fleeing to his provision for our sin that we know under the new covenant is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's Judah as Jeremiah 13 opens up. Now, notice with me in verse 1. We're going to get a word picture here, kind of a, a symbol that he calls Jeremiah to to demonstrate, he says, Thus says the Lord to me, Go and buy a linen loincloth. Now, these linen loincloths were used for priestly garments. We see that in Leviticus 16, among other places. And of course, Judah was a priestly nation. And so this linen loincloth represents something. It represents Judah. At this time, by the way, the northern kingdom had been depopulated by the Assyrians. And so Judah, which represented encompassed uh, Judah and Benjamin, is the nation that is in view here. Go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist. Don't dip it in water. It doesn't tell us why uh, he was not to dip it in water, probably because dipping it in water would make it soft and make it easier to wear. So it was going to be uncomfortable for him to wear. So I bought... A loincloth. So he went down to the mall and he purchased a loincloth and according to the word of the Lord and he put it and put it around my waist. He didn't know why at this point. You know, that just reminds us, obey God. And as you obey him, he unfolds light. He, un, he unfolds his plan. Just like when he told Abraham, go into the land, I will show you. He didn't tell Abraham the land up front. And so Abraham began to go. And as he went, God revealed more light. And that's the way he wants us to, to function as well. Well, in verse 3, the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise. Go to the Euphrates and hide it there 
in the cleft of a rock. Now, the Euphrates was several hundred miles away. It was on the Babylonian border. Uh, most scholars believe it was up to 500 miles away, 350 to 500 miles. And so that would have made a great impression. One way, on the ground, he is going there with this loincloth. It's also likely here a prophecy of the exile because the Euphrates was near Babylon and this may have symbolized Judah being carried off. All right, so notice in verse 5. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates. So he's got to go again. Second trip. And take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug. And I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the loincloth was spoiled. And it was good for nothing. Sobering words. Good for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, even so will I spoil the pride of Judah. So again, the problem here is pride. Something we overlook in the church. We would never let anyone in here who committed certain outward sins. We would have to address it, weren't we? But pride is a big issue in the Bible. I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. So Judah had a monarchy and a city, right? Stretching all the way back. And we saw this in Samuel when David went into Jerusalem and defeated the Jebusites. And then a temple was built by Solomon. Of course, we saw in Jeremiah 7 that that temple is something that they took pride in. That temple represented that they were the people of God. And because they had been led in this reform by Josiah, these external uh, reformation acts, they just did not believe God could ever say no to them. That's why they were believing the false prophets who were saying, there's no judgment to come. Have your best life now with their smiley faces. These were the things that Israel took pride in. But all of these things would suffer the fate of the linen sash. Notice with me in verse 10. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart, and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them shall be like this loincloth. For the second time we read, which is good for nothing. They had followed their own heart. Now there, there is a view today that truth is what I feel. All right? Whatever seems sensible to me, forget the facts. Forget objective truth. It's what I feel, all right? That was, that's not new to us. Went all the way back to even here. Goes all the way back to Genesis 3. But in many ways, they were obeying God outwardly. 
but they pick and choose what they're going to obey, and then they neglect and reject the things that aren't sensible to them. The reality is they were unrepentant idolaters. David Garner has a penetrating quote. He says, the heart has no room for shared ultimate affections. Isn't that a good word? The heart has no room for shared ultimate affections. It cannot sustain spiritual polygamy. The heart cannot sustain spiritual polygamy where you are worshiping all of these different gods and idols. And our tendency is to think that we can have kind of a moderate stance towards God so that we don't, we don't fervently pursue him and yet we're not going to walk away from him altogether either. Uh, writer Stephen Smith pictures um, a car, a car that's not in drive, a car that's not in reverse. It, it, it's, it's neutral. I saw a lot of this when I was growing up in the South. And look, there's so much to come in the South. But cultural Christianity, that's what this is. You're not fully all in, but you're not completely, you know, in rebellion to God. You're, you're just in neutral. It appears that you're stable that way, correct? No, because the reality is you're not on a level road. Because of our own sin, because of the flesh, the world, and the devil, we're all uphill. And so if you're in neutral, you are in a dangerous place. And yet, we were created for God. That, that's what he says in verse 11. Notice, for as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man. So Jeremiah is wearing this loincloth that he took off and, and, and put in that hole and dug it up and put a hole. He says, he says, the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people. Now, notice the description here. A name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. Now, this was God's plan for the nations as well. But that plan for the nations was to come through Israel. We noted that in Genesis 12. It will be the seed of Israel that will be the blessing for the nations. And so it was God's intention, yes, for Israel to be a name, a praise, and a glory so that the nations might be a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen. So verse 11 tells us that the linen undergarment represented Judah. And like a garment worn next to one's body, that garment symbolized God clothing himself with Judah. It was like, and that's the imagery that's being communicated. This linen garment is something God was to wear to demonstrate his beauty and glory 
to the nations. And he intended for them to cling to him, just as this linen garment was to cling to Jeremiah. Instead, they clung to the false gods, supremely Baal, or if you're in Dr. Moeller's presence, Baal. Because of their idolatry, they are now as useless. That's the language. Good for nothing. They are as useless, as good for nothing, as a rotted garment. It's horrifying language. And therefore, God determined to spoil their pride. In other words, God wanted to look attractive wearing Israel. That's the imagery. Israel was to be the garment that God was to wear. They were to live visibly and so differently among the nations that the name of the Lord would be held in praise and glory. Remember, we've talked about this. Where Israel was situated was where the superpowers of the world would go through to do their business. They had to go through Israel. And as they made their way through Israel, they were to see God's clothing, that is Israel, and go, wow, Israel's God must be amazing. Indeed, we can see this in Deuteronomy 5, for instance. Listen to these words from verse 8, Deuteronomy 5. I have taught you statutes and rules. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's. And so as they're going into the land, God is concerned about their witness among the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? In fact, listen to Deuteronomy 26, 9. He will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all the nations. And so Deuteronomy 26, the praise is for Israel, but it's apparent that as the nations praised Israel, ultimately they would be praising the Lord. It's like when you tell someone that, that you like their, their, their shirt or, or, or their or their dress, whatever it may be. Ultimately, you are praising the person who is wearing that shirt, that jacket, whatever it may be. Whenever praise comes to Israel, ultimately it was God who was to be praised. And and, and Jeremiah's point here is that not only had the people unbound themselves from the Lord, they had become unwearable to him. That's That's the imagery. They were now unwearable. And this has so many implications for us. Christopher Wright, in a book called The Mission of God's People, speaks to this very text. Listen to what he says. I found this very uh, well said and, and, and insightful. In choosing to wear Israel, God had a wider agenda, namely the exaltation of his own name among the nations through what he would ultimately accomplish And it was that wider purpose of God that Israel was so frustrating 
by their disobedience. They had become as corrupt as a new waistband that has lain in wet soil for many months. God simply couldn't wear them anymore. How could God attract admirers dressed in the filthy rags of such people? Think about that imagery. How could he attract the peoples, the nations, dressed in the rags of such people? For that reason, if God's purpose for the nations were to proceed, God would have to deal with Israel first. And so we have to ask, how does our mission, now he turns it on the church, how does our mission as God's people fit this metaphor? Are we living in such a way that the God we claim to worship attracts admiration from those around? Or does God look at us and think, I can't be seen wearing people like that? With this point made, now God is going to change metaphors. He's going to come from a different angle. Notice in verse 12. So you see the ruined loincloth, and now we see the jars filled with wine. Maybe your, your Bible has headings. You shall speak to them this word. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every jar shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? Then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land, the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will dash them one against another, fathers and sons together, declares the Lord. I will not pity or spare or have compassion that I should not destroy them. And so like a person is filling jars with, with wine, God was going to fill them with drunkenness. Now, this is metaphorical language. It's a figure to describe if you've ever seen a person who's really inebriated, uh, that person is completely helpless. It, it, this is describing the helplessness of the people to defend themselves from the enemy's attack when it comes. And, and, and these words are a reminder to us all of the conditional nature of the covenant that God made with Israel. Remember, there are unconditional and conditional aspects to the covenant. God had promised them a land and yet there was, it was conditioned upon the obedience of faith. Not works, the obedience of faith. And recognizing that they could not obey perfectly, there was the sacrificial system, right? That they were to adhere to, recognizing we are sinners, we need a substitute to die in our place. But they were not acting according to the obedience of faith. As a result... It says when the end comes, it would come without pity or compassion. Now, those same three words, uh, pity, mercy, and compassion, are going to be used in chapter 21, verse 7, to refer to Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he would show no pity, mercy, or compassion. In other words, God's judgment was going to come through a pagan 
king. Horrifying to think about <laughs> as we approach Tuesday. Well, notice in verse 15. Hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. So again, the issue is pride. Something that we can commit in the local church and not lose our place in the church. And yet God is going after that. It's a, it's a cause for judgment. We need to remember that. And so the word pride here connects this section with the two parables in verses 1 to 11. When pride resides unrepentantly, let me just tell you, as many people in here as there, there are, there are as many people who struggle with pride. But there's a difference with struggling with pride and being given over to it, being unrepentant in it. When, when pride resides unrepentantly, in one's heart, multiple and pervasive sins spawn from it. I would venture to say that unrepentant pride is behind every problem in a marriage, in a family, in the workplace, and in the local church. It's behind every problem. In an essay on Undetected Pride. It was called Undetected Pride. Jonathan Edwards. And I'm, I'm probably going to come back to this essay when we get to uh, chapters 4 to 6 in Ephesians where Paul talks about being uh, humble. So I'm probably going to address it more extensively then because it's a remarkable essay. But, but Edwards points out seven sneaky symptoms of unrepentant pride. And so I'm going to go through these real briefly and we'll probably expound on them when we get to Ephesians 4. The first, the first symptom of unrepentant pride is fault finding. Fault finding. A second symptom of unrepentant pride is a harsh spirit. The third symptom of unrepentant pride is superficiality. That certainly was an issue with Israel. They were all about external reform, but their hearts were far away from God. It's when someone who is more concerned about what people think than the real condition of their heart. A fourth symptom of unrepentant pride is defensiveness. Fifth, desperation for attention. Sixth, neglecting others, showing favoritism to others. And then seventh, and I think this is the one that Jeremiah is most concerned about, presumption before God, presuming upon his grace, presuming upon his mercies, presumption before God. In Southern Baptist life, it goes under the mantra once saved, always saved, which I believe, but it's only half of the story. Once saved, always saved, once saved, always being saved. Sanctification is the evidence that one has once been saved, right? And so I saw this growing up. 
you can't lose your salvation. And so out of that came every sin known to man under the guise of grace. That's certainly the case here. But Jeremiah's warnings and, and his appeals, they mean that there's still time for repent, to repent, uh, for repentance. So notice in verse 16, we, we do see good news in the warnings. Give glory to the Lord your God. Now you can't fundamentally give him that what he is, he infinitely possesses. What Jeremiah means here, this is just phenomenal language, like the sun rising. The sun literally doesn't rise, right? Because the, the, the earth revolves around the sun. This is phenomenal language. But we can magnify God's glory, like the moon magnifies the glory of the sun. That's what our calling is. Just like a telescope magnifies a, a distant planet. To the naked eye, you may not be able to see that planet. To the naked eye, maybe that planet you can see, but it's really small. But then a telescope reveals how big and glorious that planet is. That's, that's what our calling is. To, to sinners, <coughs> someone took my water. The anti-David. Remember when the mighty men brought him water? Someone's taking my water. But to the world... We, as the people of God, are called to give glory to God by magnifying His worth and His glory. That was Israel's calling. They were a royal priesthood called to be a light to the nations. Give glory to God before He brings darkness. The language of darkness is a language of judgment. Remember the uh, plague, the the final plague before the death of the firstborn. Darkness came on the land, right? So he says, Before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains, and while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. In that language of pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears. This is Jeremiah speaking. Because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Thank you. Verse 18. Verse 18 is really haunting. And here's why it's haunting. Because the king, under the Davidic covenant, represents the people of God as the, as the king goes so goes the people right we learned that in Samuel say to the king and the queen mother take a lowly seat for your beautiful crown has come down from your head so that crown which represented not only that king but represented Israel, as a regal nation, is being taken off the head. Now, this king would have been Jehoiakim. And his queen mother would have been Queen Nehushta. And we know from history that they were actually deported 
in 597 BC, about a decade before the ultimate exile when the, when the temple would be destroyed. So this particular prophecy is taking place at least before 597 BC. And as a result, the crown would fall off their head, which represented the crown had fallen off of Israel, God's regal people. Notice in verse 19, the cities of the Negev are shut up with none to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile. That is a Hebrewism that emphasizes totality, emphasis. In fact, this is the first time that the word exile has been used since Jeremiah 1, verse 3, when it says, It came in the days of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the captivity, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. It's hard to imagine how fearful exile would be. I think we probably understand it better now that we've had riots in Louisville. And you didn't know how far the riots were going to come to the eastern part of town. I think that's as close as any of us have come to understand how fearful exile would be. But literally, they were going to be taken up, perhaps even separated from their families, and taken into another nation some 500 miles away, which is a long, long distance when you don't have cars and planes. Fearful, but even more so, exiled from the city of God, where God revealed his presence to his people, where atonement for sins were made. Well, notice in verse 20. He says, lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Who are those who come from the north? The Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? What will you say when they set as head over you those whom you yourself have taught to be friends to you? Now, we know in Hosea's time, we know this from Hosea 7, that Israel, again, let me make this distinction. Israel was the northern ten tribes, right? And they were, remember, Israel and Judah were, they were um, separated. There was a division in the kingdom in 931 B.C. Because of Solomon and his son Rehoboam's sins. And so you have this division in the kingdom, and Israel goes one way, the two southern tribes, collectively known as Judah, went the other way, 931 B.C., and then in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom is completely depopulated by the Assyrians. Hosea preached to the northern kingdom. Hosea and Amos were the two prophets that God raised up to go to the northern kingdom. All right? And Hosea, it tells us in chapter 7, verse 11, that Israel had turned not to the Lord, but to Assyria and Egypt for help. And he says it was like turning to a silly, senseless dove. 
for help. The exact words that Hosea had used. You turned to them, and it was like turning to this weak bird. And now Judah had made the same sinful mistake. They were making or trying to make alliances with Babylon and Egypt. And when they saw, this is what Jeremiah is saying, how their confidence had been betrayed, their pain would be like that of a woman in labor. Now, I've never been in labor, but I've been in a room with a woman in labor. I can only envision what that would be. Now, notice in verse 22. If you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? Now, if someone is in deep, unrepentant sin, and these things come upon them, and they're asking the question, why did this come upon them? You see the problem. You see the problem. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. They have no brokenness over their sin. We, we interact with people like that all the time. They can't see their sin. He says, so if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? Well, I'll answer the question for you. It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. And, and so essentially verse 22 takes the message of all the previous chapters and then condenses it into a single question. Why? And then he answers it with a summary of all of Jeremiah's ser uh, sermons so far because of the greatness of your iniquity. That's why. Notice in verse 23, can. Now this is, this is a, a critical question because he's getting at the heart of the problem. And here's the problem. Sinners can't change themselves. Sinners, at best, can turn over a new leaf, make January New Year's resolutions, but they cannot change their hearts. And he's going to use a word picture that was well known in the day to make that point. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Are the leopard his spots? That's the question he's asking. It was a well-known adage. Of course, the answer is no. Jeremiah is making the point that there is no hope for sinful, prideful Judah. Verse 25, as a result, this is your lot. The portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. Now, the irony here, don't miss this, this language of lot and portion, were originally the division of the land to Israel's families and clans and tribes. It was a symbol of God's faithfulness to them. So he gave them lots and portions. You can see that in Jeremiah, or, or Joshua, rather. But here, the divine lot is landlessness, or to say another way, exile. Well, notice in verse 26, I myself will lift up your skirts over your face and your shame will be seen. So it's interesting here that the metaphor of clothing begins and closes Jeremiah 13. 
At the beginning, uh, Jeremiah was to wear this linen sash, and then he was to take it off. And here you see this language of lifting <coughs> your skirts over your face in shame. So this association of nakedness and shame and sin, what does that remind you of? It's an echo of the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Essentially what we see here, Israel, Judah, has reenacted as the corporate Adam what the first Adam had actually done in his sin. And then verse 27 closes with a sobering question. I have seen your abominations, your adulteries, and your neighings. That's the language of an animal in heat. Your lewd whorings on the hills in the field. Now, that's, that's referring to spiritual adultery. But often in pagan religion, uh, there was actual um, consorting with temple prostitutes as a way to consummate false pagan worship. And so that was going on as well. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. And here comes the question, the sobering last question of the chapter. How long will it be before you're made clean? In fact, the one thing the Old Testament is establishing is that Israel can't be made clean by themselves. Only the Lord can make them clean. In fact, in Jeremiah 33, listen to these words. Verse 8, I will cleanse them. Same verb. How long will it be before you're made clean? I will cleanse them. They can't clean themselves. You, you tried by your external religious reform, but you, you only made it worse. You got prideful. That's all external religion does. It makes you even more sinful. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. That's remarkable grace, by the way. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall to be to me. Now listen to these words. You've heard them already in the text. A name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth. It's God who's going to cleanse them. But how's he going to do this? Well, let's just consider the imagery of this chapter as we close tonight. Well, consider first of all the linen spoiled by sin. The New Testament promises that new linen will be given to the saints to wear in glory. Revelation 19.8, fine linen, which is the righteous deeds of the Lamb. You get that? New linen will be given the righteous deeds of the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? The Lord Jesus Christ. It will be His righteousness that is given to us given to the people of God, given to everyone who would believe. And it will be that righteousness which will be the fine linen that 
will clothe us. Or consider the the wine of God's wrath that we see in this chapter. Of course, we know that Jesus drank the wrath of God's wrath, or he drank the blood or the cup of God's wrath on the cross, and now he offers believers the wine of salvation, which is the cup of the new covenant in his blood, Luke 22, verse 20. How about the darkness on the land, the judgment that fell on these people or would fall on these people? How about when Jesus was on the cross and became completely dark on the land for three hours. I think that is a recapitulation of the ninth plague before the exodus. Because in the ninth plague, darkness falls on the land for three days, and then you have the death of the firstborn son or the death of the lamb. On the cross, after the darkness fell for three hours, you have the death of both the firstborn son and the lamb. And when he rose, Jesus said, the light, the darkness cannot and will not overcome. The light shall overcome the darkness, in other words. He says, I am the light of the world. And that's why things are not getting darker in Jesus' true church. Things are getting darker in our culture. But no matter what happens on Tuesday, and trust me, I have my preferences, and you do too. But whatever happens on Tuesday the church is only going to get brighter and brighter because there's nothing in this dark culture that can overcome the light of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the light of his bride. How about the issues with royalty? The king and the queen lost their crown, right? Who represented the regal nation of Israel. Jesus has come to restore our lost dominion. Every believer will receive an eternal crown. It's a crown, Paul says, of righteousness. James says it's a crown of life. Finally, you have the shameful prostitute in our text tonight. Prostitute representing spiritual adultery. Jesus turns, Revelation 21 tells us, the harlot into a virgin bride adorned for her husband. Jesus is the answer to the question, how long will it be before you're made clean? And now cleansed from sin. That's who we are. We still sin, but positionally we are cleansed from sin because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2.10 tells us that we are to adorn the gospel. That verb... Adorn is the verb cosmeo. It's where we get the word cosmetics. We are to make the gospel look like it is beautiful and glorious to the world. Again, C.H. Wright, Christopher Wright says, part of our mission as the people of God is to attract admiration. To attract admiration. If there's nothing admirable, nothing attractive about our lives as Christians, individually, collectively, in person, or may I dare say, on social media, then there is 
At the instrumental level, little hope of the world finding anything admirable about our God and about his gospel. Let me close with these words from Christopher Wright. Are we the kind of clothing that God is pleased to wear in order to attract the nations to himself? Remember, when we're out and about, we're his clothing. Or are we so soiled that people wrinkle their noses at us and at the God we represent? Remember, before any other calling we have, representing a particular party or this candidate or this candidate, we are God's clothing. That's our fundamental and highest calling. That's what we learned from Jeremiah. Let's pray. When, Lord, will we make clean? We come to you because we have an answer in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you. And now, Lord, because we've been made clean by his grace, by his act of humility, making himself of no reputation, coming in the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of man, and humbling himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Because we have the forgiveness of sins in his great act of humility, we pray, Lord, that by the Spirit forming Christ in us, we could overcome our real tendency towards pride, sinful pride, by the humility of Christ that is being formed in each one of us who believe. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. You are dismissed this evening.